got it. Hey, good morning. Professional, I do this for work. All right. Um, my name is Chris. If I don't know you, I'm uh, on staff here at Riverstone, and I'm glad you're here. Um, glad to see you all. If you're online or in person, we're glad that you're choosing to engage um, in some form or fashion. Um, today, I'm going to invite you um, to participate in a season um, that the church has been observing for centuries. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that Lent is the season um, in the church calendar that leads up to Easter. I didn't grow up observing this. I grew up thinking that Lent was the stuff you found in the dryer after you did the load. Um, apparently, it's also a season um, in the historical church calendar. Um, and today, all I'm going to do really is focus on why I think participating in this interesting season um, can be a hand in the tool of the Lord for the formation of our souls for his glory and our good. So let me pray, um, and then we'll get into it. Jesus, thank you um, that your faithfulness is a deep and profound source of comfort for us today. Lord, we can just lean back and find comfort in the fact that though the mountains crumble under our feet, or though um, the breath in our lungs ceases, your faithfulness remains, God. So we find comfort, Lord, in the fact that you are way more faithful to us than we are to you. You're worthy. There's no one like you. Amen. So the church has historically observed seasons that echo truths in the rhythms of the gospel, okay? So Advent, grew up in church, maybe you observed these things, I didn't. Grew up in a charismatic church, didn't observe these seasons. Advent is the gospel truth that God comes to us as a gift in Christ. There it is, right? Lent is the gospel truth that repentance is the door into life, all right? Salvation and atonement for sins, it's Good Friday and Easter. The indwelling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit comes in the season of Pentecost. I don't know if you noticed, but that is the sequence of salvation. God's gift is first and foremost. We respond to that gift in repentance and therefore receive atonement, forgiveness of sins, and then are filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the church seemed to think that we are a forgetful people and that we need routine reminders of the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. The Lord, in fact, knows, right, like the song we sing often, that our hearts are prone to wander and need to be continually reminded of God's supernatural story in the earth, what he is doing. So he had the Israelites observe things like Passover and Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, right? All those that the Lord instituted amongst his people thousands and thousands of years ago were to remind the people of God, hey, don't forget what I did, right? So every year comes around these seasons and rhythms and holidays that for us really have just kind of drifted into triviality, right? Like Christmas and Easter, so we have Easter Bunny and Santa Claus, and all these things are just kind of awash in an ocean of triviality for most of us, right? And yet I think if we'll sit with some of the seasons of the church, we will find profound meaning and impact in reminding us that we are a part of a story that transcends our very lives. 
And there's truths in the gospel that will make for your joy if you will submit to them. And one of the seasons that I want to sit with today and what I'm going to invite you into um, is Lent, right? So for most of us, in terms of also remembering things, we, we, you would maybe consider yourself a Holy Spirit-filled Christian. I'm not speaking for everyone. I know everyone probably doesn't say that about themselves. For most of us, maybe, maybe you consider yourself a Holy Spirit-filled Christian. That doesn't mean you don't need to make a list when you go to Home Depot, right? That doesn't mean you don't need to keep a calendar. Like, I can't even remember how old I am half the time, right? And so there are rhythms and seasons that we can participate in that help us remember the things that our hearts are so easily prone uh, to forget, right? As a professional Christian, as a pastor, okay, I need more than most probably necessarily, I need the truths of the gospel repeated to my heart over and over and over again. The gospel myself every day. You know why? Because I'm dumb and I forget it. I thought that was funny. That wasn't a joke. I was serious. I forget, y'all. Like, I can't remember how old I am half the time. I'm like, I don't know. Can't do math either, so I'm like lost, you know? So, because this is the thing. This is the thing. All of us have narratives that are being washed over you by mere fact of you living in this society. 24-7. 24-7, someone is selling you a narrative. This is what I mean by that. Right? Every time you look at your phone, every time you drive and see a billboard, every time you see a commercial, someone's selling you a narrative. What they're selling you is redemption is found here. Advertisements, marketers, it's all they're saying. Everyone's in the business of redemption, y'all. Okay, what business you're in, right? Salvation is found in new clothes. Salvation is found in better looks, better spouse, better car, better sex, better job. Redemption. Everyone's selling redemption, y'all. You got a 24-7, right? This will redeem you from the pit of self-misery that we're all trying to keep at bay. I can sell it to you, right? Got it in my back pocket. I'll give it to you on a deal, huh? Redeem your soul. And I get 35 minutes a week to try to convince you that there's another narrative, a stronger narrative, a deeper narrative that says redemption is found in Christ and Christ alone, right? It's why, it's why scripture, y'all, and worship and hanging with believers is so essential for us because we're a forgetful people. I'm a pack, I got the mic. I'm a forgetful person. I need to continually shoulder up next to people that will remind me of the grace of God. It's not resting on your shoulders, Chris. There's another, a stronger savior that can carry you in your moments of weakness. I don't know if you need that, but I do, okay? So these seasons can remind us of the larger narrative of the gospel and the larger story of grace that you are a part of if you call yourself a Christian. So for some of us, I want to remind you of some truths. And for others who are new, I want to explain to you today why I think this is a season that's worth participating in. And then I want to challenge you into how you may, if you choose, to participate in this season with me and maybe some other people around here, okay? So maybe one of the largest benefits I see from this season, let me just give you real quick, I didn't even say what it is, right? Lent, the church calls Lent this 40-day period that leads up to Easter. And the whole idea of this season is that it is a season of self reflection and assessment and what the church would with the Christian word is repentance right <laughs> so real fun right and when we first started doing this Mike was doing our graphics and he was like what, what's, what's the subtitle and I was like I don't know he's like maybe it should be is it over yet right? <laughs> because because it's not fun it's not right 
So it's a season of repentance. It's a season of looking inward. And it's a season of fasting. And that's what the church, that's what they've called us to. And it's wonderful because it's just not on my to-do list, is it? Is fasting on your to-do list as a Christian? Someone's like, "Mm." no, no, probably not, right? Most of us know it's not. And so it's fitting then, isn't it, that we routinely and annually remind ourselves that Jesus expected his followers to fast. And for many of us, it's a very alien thought, right, in an age of consumerism. Lent introduces some very unpopular thoughts into our routine thought patterns, right? In a culture today where it is very trendy to be enraged and accusatory and insisting that structures and governments and everyone else needs to change. Am I not? Am I, not? I thought I was going to get an amen on that one. I mean, anyway, in a, in, okay, right? You guys are listening. In a society where it is trendy to be enraged, you need to think about that. Right? If you are not enraged today, you're on the outside. You're not paying attention. You need to be enraged. Why? Because you need to demand change. Where? Everywhere else. Right? Are we talking? Right? If you're not, if you're not I'm not going to use the, okay, I'm going to use it. Woke. Okay, whatever. You should be, I wasn't going to use that. I wasn't going to use that. It's too, like, politicized, right? I know, Exactly. I shouldn't have used it. Anyway, it's out now. All right. You should be enraged, right? Lent, if we will let it, introduces a thought. Lent, listen to, my, listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth, causes the smokescreen of self-righteousness to settle. The smokescreen of self-righteous anger to settle, that we might be able to see where we have, in some places, been cowards when it comes to confronting evil. Not in the world, but in our own hearts and lives, right? Where we have been duped into thinking, all we have to do, listen to me, all we have to do to be responsible people is demand change from others instead of demanding change of ourselves. I don't know if you've heard the word responsible being used lately, right? Being duped into thinking that all you have to be to be a responsible person is someone who is demanding everyone else change instead of demanding you yourself change. You know how easy, I've been a Christian a long time. You know how easy it is for me to walk in any church and deconstruct the entire thing? It is so easy for me. Some of you are like, that's what I'm doing right now, deconstructing you. It is so easy for me to walk in and say, well, you know, worship, EQ's off, he sounds nasally, and that person, you know, and the light shouldn't be this way, and like I'm some pro, not some pro, but I'm obviously arrogant enough to walk into any church and begin disassembling it and criticizing every little nook and cranny of it. You know how easy that is? (laughs) You know what's hard? to take that position towards the interior of your own life. To take an open and maybe critical position of the thoughts and ideas and words and actions that you yourself are allowing to take root in your heart and life. That's a lot harder 
You know what the three hardest words are in the entire English language? It's my fault. <laughs> Good one. That's it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it. I have sinned. I have sinned. Some of us cannot say that. I have sinned. We just can't. We can't because our value as a human being is resting on our self-righteousness. We cannot bring ourselves to say things like, I have sinned. Because then our whole world falls apart. If I've sinned, if I've screwed up, no one will listen to me. If I've sinned, if I've screwed up, there's no, there's no value to my life anymore because your entire existence is resting on your being right. I want to tell you something, man. There is an amazing, liberating power in the gospel of Jesus Christ to where we can with freedom and confidence say, I have sinned. It's a weird, it's a weird dichotomy. I'm going to give it to you. It's a weird dichotomy. What I'm telling you is there is only freedom after you can say that word. Lent allows us to admit and acknowledge areas that in our own hearts we have been tolerating darkness. <laughs> Super fun, right? It's the season of the church where we ask ourselves, have I made agreements with darkness? Have I begun to rely on sin and darkness to survive and get by in life. Lent introduces the very unpopular and revolutionary concept of maybe it's me. Maybe I have areas in my heart and life that still need the healing and transforming touch of Jesus, right? Um, so it's a season of open acknowledgement where of the places where I have drifted from Jesus, where my appetites, and this, we're going to come back to this, have gotten out of balance and where I may be overly dependent on this thing or that and invite Jesus back into the throne of my heart. And, and I, I, this is my hope for you. I hope that for some of you who perhaps have grown up in church and have lived under the crushing and unbearable weight of religious perfectionism, that you can right now breathe for the first time. That you could right now say, finally, finally, I don't have to keep the facade up anymore. Like finally, like for some of us in here, a season like this can be the most liberating thing we've ever experienced in our entire lives. You're telling me that when I come in this room, I don't have to hide behind a facade of plastic happiness? Freedom! You're telling me I can come in this room and be known and like actually deal with my stuff and not have to project perfection to everyone else? Yeah, so I'm telling you. So I'm telling you. And I'm saying, if we can't establish a community like this, then we have drifted from the gospel greatly. Amen. If we can't establish, y'all, a place where we can come and feel the liberty for one person at one point to say, praise his name and jump up and down and sing and dance and laugh and rejoice in God and for another person to be able to kneel and repent and cry and weep. And so we just don't have the liberty of heart to tolerate differences like that amongst us. 
And we just fall prey to this. If you're going to be here, you better fit in this cookie Christian mold, right? And we lose out on the uniqueness that God has created us. And then we lose that on the ability to go through seasons, y'all. Life is full of seasons. So one of the things I love about Lent is that it reminds us of this thing, that it is a season and there are seasons. Some of us right now are in a season of winter spiritually. It's winter now. You look outside, you just like notice the woods right now. No leaves, my grass looks dead. The, literally, the color of the landscape has leaked out, hasn't it? Physically, right now. If you look outside, the landscape looks bleak. Things look dead. And for some of us, there's no better description of the spiritual state of our hearts right now. We would say, spiritually speaking, the vibrancy of my spiritual life with God has leaked out the page. And what used to be colorful and bright and life-giving is now bleak, black and white. It's not vibrant. Can I just say it to you? <laughs> Can you hear this right now? It's okay. It's okay. Breathe. Life is full. Look, I've been a Christian a long time. There's seasons of my life where I was like, God's gone, man. He's gone. I don't know where he went. I'm trying to be faithful. Can I just say to you, it's okay. It's okay. You're amongst friends. It's okay to admit that I just can't get into worship. It just sounds horrible. I can't connect with those songs. I don't know what you're talking about. The Bible seems dead to me. Can I just say to you, it's okay. Like, keep on keeping on, man. Stay with us. Don't, don't bail on us just because your experience of the thing is, does that in any way, no other places do we apply the logic that we apply to Jesus. It, like, is that, does that in any way neglect the truth of something? The fact that you're not outside enjoying the warmth of the sun doesn't mean the sun's not shining. Amen. The sun's out there. The fact that you are living in a cave by your own will has nothing to do with the strength and vitality of the sun. We don't apply this logic to anywhere else in life. Look, the love of God is just as real when you experienced it, when you were rejoicing in it, and in the seasons where you can't experience it and wish you could. His love is, remains the same. He is the most faithful entity in the universe. It's our experience of the thing that shifts. Can I just say it's okay? There are seasons where I need brothers to come alongside me and remind me over and over again, God loves you, man. He's with you. Don't bail. And I feel like today right now that some of us are on the edge of bailing. We're just on the fringe, man. Like it's been so long since we've connected with Jesus. It's been so long since prayers had any weight. And we're just deciding, man, I just, I'm not going to, I'm going to bail. I'm out. I just want to say, man, just hang on. His faithfulness is good. This is for someone, this is for someone in this room right now. None of that was in my notes. Often in churches, in their efforts to become uh, what maybe you'd know as seeker friendly, you know, or in their efforts to become relevant, they've done a really bad job at creating space for repentance and mourning and struggling through the valley of the shadows. And that has created a paradigm in which if you really want to deal with your stuff, if you really want to work through the issues that you're actually dealing with, and you go to AA, you go to CR, you go to a counselor, I'm telling you what the seeker-friendly movement at its worst has created in church culture. Right, so if you want to fix your stuff, you go to a help group. 
You can deal with your stuff there. If you want to prove you're awesome, go to church. Uh, you go to church to prove to everyone you got it together and everything's great. And you, if you want to actually want to deal with it, you got to go to a CR group. The seeker-friendly movement at its worst removes the cross. And churches have done this across the nation. They've said the cross is offensive. Take it off the pulpit. <laughs> Put our logo up there, right? They remove the cross. They don't talk about sin or repentance or the free grace of the gospel. And what comes from the pulpit morphs into a self-help, neo-Christian power of positive thinking theology. And there's a problem, though. See, the problem when we do this as a church, as the community of faith, as the people of God, is it removes from modern Christian thinking one of the fundamental assumptions of the Bible, which is the assertion that the problem with the world is not culture or education. The Bible does not say the problem with the world is culture, y'all. As many as the Christian culture has uh, progressed that idea, has pushed forward that idea, that the, the problem in the world's culture, that is not what the Bible says. Or the problem in the world is entertainment. Whatever the sins of the past have been, right? Uh, the problem with the world is uh, the radical left. <laughs> the problem with the world is politics. Or the problem with the world is social media, which like, I'm like, man, maybe it is, I'm not sure, right? No. <laughs> Those are visible avenues in which the problem manifests itself. One of the foundational pillars of the Bible. And therefore, what should be a foundational pillar in our thinking is the problem with the world is that creation has become guilty of mutiny against its creator. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we've turned to the only one who knows what makes for ultimate flourishing and said, we know more than you. We'll take it from here. And it's what every single one of us do when we sin. When the church, in an effort to be accepted and trendy, begins to ignore that foundational truth, y'all, the whole schema falls apart and becomes irrelevant, right? Like, isn't that crazy that in our efforts to become relevant and in our efforts to become uh, accessible, we become utterly irrelevant because if sin is not an issue, then what's Jesus about? And what's the cross? Why do you need that? The cross becomes an enigma. We don't get it. Why do you have to die? We're all great, <laughs> right? So if we ignore these fundamental things, we get off in these un, you know, just futile catty corners of theology and it becomes, the cross becomes this like unneeded tragedy that happened to Jesus and poor guy, you know? Because, and then Christians then, so when we remove that thinking, then we jump in with the culture and thinking and we start blaming culture and education and politics. And our thinking gets hijacked by the streams that we find ourselves in, right? Because the problem's not us, good gracious, right? It's out there. <laughs> the problem's out there somewhere. It's them, they're the problem, right? And then... You know the result of having no space to be honest about the realities of your heart? Do you know the result of having no space to be honest about the massive moral failure? Massive moral failure. Because here we are, all limping around broken, acting like nothing's broken here, like crawling on the ground because you have no legs. I'm fine. 
I got legs. Not acknowledging and being honest about the reality of our hearts can only end in massive moral failure because we never find a place in which it's okay to not be okay. We never come clean about the darkness and the struggles of our own hearts and therefore are never healed by Jesus because we're saying, we're fine. I'm good, right? And church folk, we've said this a lot here, find themselves in the very place that we should be able to deal with sin and darkness, unable to, because I'm fine, you're fine, and everyone's fine, right? And what you'll see in many pulpits today is a people-pleasing paralysis when it comes to addressing sin and repentance, and they stop preaching the gospel, they stop dealing with hard issues, right, because Jesus demands it so. Jesus demands it, right? We, should all, we all have to be perfect, right? And the church ceases to be a place where you can struggle through and grieve and mourn. And they completely ignore large swaths of scripture. And they don't read the Psalms of lament and mourning. They just Marie Kondo the Bible. Uh, I didn't come up with that. You know Marie Kondo? the cutest little Asian lady you've ever seen. And so what we do, you know, she does this thing where she goes around to people's houses and they're like hoarders. And she's like, you place your hand on the thing. I'm not going to do it. And yeah, don't do it. And if it doesn't spark joy, you get rid of it. That's what we do with the Bible. We, whenever we come to things that don't meet the felt emotional need, in that moment we say, eh, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to toss that out, right? Which is the reason why I love Lent. Because <laughs> it's going to be our tendency to not deal with things like this. It's going to be our tendency to not deal with fasting <laughs> and repentance and acknowledging areas of our hearts where we're broken, right? And the other thing is that, which I said a little bit before, is that it's a season. That's the other thing I enjoy about it, right? Um, when you come to seasons in life's, uh, we, where God seems to have been absent, where he seems to have vacated the, pre- uh, the premises of your soul. Um, you, have, you have two options in these seasons, y'all. If you're in a season like that right now, like I was mentioning, right, you have two options. You can either uh, rage against God and rage against Christians and let your frustration and anger push you into further isolation. Or you can realize that this is a season And like every season, this too shall pass. And listen to my words right here. You can choose to be present in the season you are in. Hmm? And you can figure out what it means to reflect the faithfulness of God in the winter, just like in the summer. If you're in a season of winter spiritually, God might be saying, what does it look like for you to be faithful in this season where you can't feel me, where I seem to have left? Hmm? Perhaps for some of us, just the freedom to acknowledge that you are in a season of winter, right? You are, you are still a Christian, you know? Like we tend to think, oh, I must not be a Christian anymore. Man, stay the course, right? We are not immune from difficulty as Christians, and the reality is, Part of the process of getting through the difficult season you may find, you're in, find yourself in is to stop pretending that you're not in that season. And on the other side of that coin, which is important for us, I think, even today, is I think many Christians are glad to walk with you 
through seasons of victory and plenty. What we may need to work on is being people who are willing to walk with our brothers and sisters through seasons of want and woundedness. Amen. Yeah, that's a true friend, isn't it? So the second aspect of Lent um, coming to us as a season is often lost um, on non-agricultural societies. Um, and it's that right now, even now, uh, spring is on the horizon. Winter is turning to spring. Agri- agricultural societies knew that in this time, um, this is now the time to till the soil. So the agricultural societies work within. Every time it comes around, they know it's work time. It's time to go to work. It's time to remove the old growth that's come up in the winter. It's time to break up the hardened ground um, so that new things can grow. Agricultural societies know that they're, if they're going to eat, there's work to be done, and it's to be done right now. Um, because in the winter, often other things begin to grow in the fields that will steal all of the nutrients that the soil needs if a good harvest is to be had at the end of summer. So you see, it's not that those things are evil. You know, it, there, it's just other things. It might be pretty things, right? Weeds are often very pretty. <laughs> Can't tell you how many times I'm in my yard and my wife's like, that's a weed! And it's like a flower, you know? Don't, don't do it. Oftentimes they're pretty. They're good things. They're not bad things. But they will suck up the nutrients in the soil. And so they know if we're going to grow things now, we have, to, we have to work the land a bit. We have to remove all the old growth, right? They knew if they didn't take responsibility for forming the land, the land would form itself. And can I just say to you, the, true, the same is true of your soul. If you do not take responsibility for the formation of your soul, it will form itself. And it will align itself with whatever the current form of culture happens to be in your day and age. Because you are being formed. You are being discipled. The question is, what are you being formed into? And the question is, are you willing to take responsibility for the kind of person you are becoming? Or are you content to blame your spouse or your job or your situation? See, Lent comes to us as the landscape is changing, and we can learn from this, right? But it also comes to us in a way of saying, wipe the spiritual sleep from your eyes, right? It's time to till the soil, to take responsibility for your own soul and the cultivation of your soul, right? No one else but you, y'all. No one else but you is responsible for the formation of your soul. You can blame me, but I'm not responsible, right? Only you are responsible. It reminds us that things are growing. Things are growing in the landscape of your soul. Question is, what is it, right? Um, Knowing that the actions and the thoughts that you allow to have their way in you will grow and form the land and may be the very thing choking out God's spirit from bringing new life. And this is exactly the kind of language that Jesus used, y'all. Agricultural language. In Mark 4, he said uh, that the word of God is like a seed sown in the soil of your soul. And in 419, I think we have it here. Yeah, he says, but the the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of other things enter in and choke the word. And it, this is interesting, isn't it? And it becomes, I changed it, and it proves unfaithful. The word of, stay with it. The word of God is shown to be unfaithful in your life because of the way you have received it. That's very interesting, isn't it? Is that that not what it says? Unfruitful. Unfruitful, sorry, yeah, unfruitful, thank you. Yeah, so you're like, no, you got it wrong. 
You know. Yeah, but you see, he's saying the disposition in you is the thing that is making it seem unfruitful. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it? So, I never want to assume that all of us in here uh, are on board with this. I always want to take time to say, this is why I think it's reasonable. This is why I think it's good and healthy and God-glorifying and, and can remind our hearts of the gospel, right? And I want to encourage us in, to participate in this way, and then we're going to wrap up and get out of here, right? The primary way that I want to invite you to participate in the season of Lent up until Easter, which is about a 40-odd day period, right, is by either intermittent or total, depending on what you're doing, fasting. Yay! Right? That's how I'm going to invite you to participate in this season if you should choose to participate. So, if, so something like food, right? I'm, I'm inviting you to say, okay, on this day for this meal, or maybe on this day by itself, or maybe just this kind of food, I'm going to say no to that until Easter, right? Or you can fast from things like this, entertainment. You can fast, God help us, from the 24-hour news cycle. You can fast from social media. That's a favorite of mine. You can fast from online shopping. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're fasting from. But what does matter is that I want you to find something that may be asserting unhealthy dominance over your soul. So whether that's sugar, <laughs> or social media, or Instagram, or the news cycle, there are things that are not sin that are nonetheless growing in the landscape of your life and choking out the productivity of God, the fruitfulness of God. See, fasting is not repentance. That's different. You deal with that in a very different way. Fasting is, is not, stop, it's not stopping sinning. That's repentance, right? Fasting is saying no to good things to make room for better things. That's what fasting is, and that's what I'm inviting you in to do, right? Food is not evil. It's God's gift to us. Entertainment, social media. <laughs> well, mm. no. <laughs> None of, these things aren't evil. Online shopping is not evil, right? N none of this is evil. When we fast, we are saying more than food, more than entertainment, more than social acceptance, more than being up to date on the latest drama, more than all these things, I desire you, God. I want you. Lord. I want to know the nearness and the power of God more than I want to whatever. Satisfy this appetite in the moment, right? And I say this every year, and I, I feel like it's a good thing to remind us of, you know, and so I'm going to say it again. Um, appetites are God's gift to us. They've been given to us for good, for his glory, for our joy, right? They are wonderful servants, they are oppressive masters. Appetites are wonderful servants. They are oppressive masters. When we enter into seasons of fasting, we are able to check where our appetites have grown out of God-given boundaries and overflowed the banks, right, and started to wreak havoc in the valley. So we always think of this picture. Every year we look at this. Appetites are like rivers. They bring life where they go. Your appetite for everything God's given you was made to bring life to you for food, recreation, sex, all these things, good appetites. God has given them to you to bring life. They are to be to you like a river in a valley, that everything is growing around it. But what happens when rivers and valleys overwhelm their borders, when they become flooded? 
You ever seen a river just wreaking havoc down a valley, bringing with it trees and bridges and debris? So too do your appetites when they grow out of God-given boundaries. And some of us know this not from just theory, but from experience. Some of us know when our own desires and appetites for good things have grown out of healthy boundaries and wreaked havoc to ourselves and to others. And fasting is a way where we keep in check. One of, fact, one of the things about fasting is that we can keep in check these appetites and desires in our hearts and lives that may have grown to unhealthy levels. Does that make sense? So if you should choose, I would like to encourage you to spend some time, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, considering what things may be growing to unhealthy places in your hearts and life. And if when I was saying the list, you're like, I could never give that up. Well, that's probably God being like, that's the one. But I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to do this. I'll be, I'll be doing it. A lot of us will be doing it. And if you should choose to, I think it would prove fruitful in your heart and your life, right? My prayer is that you will consider those things in your life that are not sin, but may have grown out of um, healthy, God-established boundaries. And that we could say, like God says to the ocean, this far you shall come and no farther to our appetites. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah. Um, the last thing that I, I just wanted to say today is, as um, many of us may know uh, or are aware of, well, we lost a good friend this week on Wednesday. Um, an elder of our church, Tom, Tom Preston, passed away. Um, in a very, for us, what was a very unexpected and difficult bout with um, COVID. Um, and he was a uh, pillar of stability for this church for decades. Um, uh, he, he was uh, a source of strength and counsel um, for dad for, I mean, he was in the, in the room when the church was, was born uh, 20, 20 some odd years ago, right? He's been with this church for a long time. Um, and and I, I grew up in, in a Christian culture that in, in many ways um, would rush um, People who are grieving um, would try to rush the process and say, well, you know, hey, he's, he's with the Lord. And that's, I believe that. Listen, I believe Tom's with, with the Lord, right? I do. Um, and I believe that we should and, and, and find comfort in what we ultimately believe is true. Um, but grief um, is a process. And I think it's particularly relevant even what we're talking about, about these seasons, right? Um, that uh, death uh, stings and it hurts. And um, if in our effort to kind of project uh, a victorious front to the world, we cease to be a place um, that mourns with those who mourn, uh, we've made a tragic mistake, right? Um, and, and also, I just want to say this about, about this. Um, uh, Jesus does not shame you for mourning the death of those you love. There, there is a thing in the church where you can almost feel shamed for grieving. I don't know if you've experienced this. Don't grieve. I, now, I believe there's a deep and abiding comfort and joy that we have in God. But I also think that, as one writer says, grief is like a hot cup of tea. Um, if, if you try to rush it, it scalds you. And if you ignore it and forget about it, it becomes cold and bitter. But if you drink it as it comes to you, it can be a source of comfort. And so I just want to encourage you on these things and that uh, it's been a difficult week for a lot of us. And um, I think uh, 
our job right now is to come, come around his family and weep with those who weep. Um, and I know there's a mill train going, so we can get on with that as well. Um, Gary, what did you have? Yeah. I think Gary wanted to share just something, just as a testimony to Tom, real quick. And then we'll, then we'll come to the table, as long as Gary keeps it short. Uh, <laughs> um, as we were worshiping this morning, I felt a strong uh, urging from the Lord that I needed to share this. Um, the reason I'm here today at this church, it's been 23, 24 years, is because of Tom Preston. And I got to paint a little picture here because my, I moved here from Maryland in 1997. And my perception of the South, which was my reality, was that, and I'm just going to be blunt, you know, white folks are racist, you know, you don't belong there. And having, you know, been saved in a quote-unquote black church and my worship experience and, and everything about you know, my cultural upbringing was that Southern whites are not, you know, friendly, you know. And so that feeling actually was confirmed having moved here with a young family as we tried to find a church and we're in Gwinnett County, which is pretty different from Gwinnett County today, honestly. And we had visited some churches and Back then, we, you know, my culture is we wear suit and ties to church because we kind of clean up real well when we go to church. And I went to several churches and, you know, tried to find a church home. And everything I experienced at those churches, whether, whether it was a Methodist church or a Lutheran church or wherever, kind of confirmed what I had been fed my entire life. Like, you know, these Southern white folks aren't nice. And a particular experience that kind of sat with me and actually literally drove me to a quote unquote black church, what I was used to, is we went to a church and we're in a soundproof room and we, our kids were young and I had my son and you know he was crying and making some noise but you could hear the service in there. And after a few weeks of nobody speaking to me at different churches and stuff, I kind of looked internally and said, well, maybe it's me. Why should I wait for them to speak to me? I'm a friendly person. I'll go out and speak to people after church. And I literally walked around the sanctuary and said, like, hi, how you doing? I'm Gary. And nobody extended their hand for me to shake. And it was an all-white church. I'm just going to be honest. Not one person in that church extended their hand for me to, to shake. And everybody just kind of looked at me as if I didn't belong. And it was very, very painful and so I told Chupan, and I said, well, we're going to go back to what we know. And so there was a church downtown Lawrenceville, at least a building, and we rode by it, and it said Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. I'll never forget, it was near the courthouse. And we said, we're going to go to that church on Sunday morning. Jeremiah Johnson's got to be a brother, you know. <laughs> so uh, as we rode there that Sunday morning, cleaned up as usual, and we got to the parking lot, it was abandoned. And we're like, wow, nobody's here. And as we pulled around at the Gwinnett County Courthouse, we saw a sign that said Gwinnett Vineyard Christian Fellowship. I'm like, huh, is that a church? I wonder what that is. So I pulled into the parking spot, and I told them, well, wait here. Let me run up and see what's going on. And I, you know, I go in, and if you know the courthouse, you go up the stairs and bend right. I think Chris was playing drums that day or something. 
But as I walk in, you know, Tom Preston was the first guy that I came in contact with. And Tom said, how are you? How are you? Welcome, you know, you know, welcome to church. And I looked at him, and the first thing that came to mind was, you know, I've just ran, I run into this guy the last six, seven weeks that I've been looking for churches, okay? Um, but there was something about his spirit that just kind of warmed me, and he seemed so genuine. And so I said, yeah, I will. And I turned around and walked out, and he probably thought, oh, he's a goner. <laughs> but I walked out and went back to the car, and I got Penn and I got the kids, and we came to church. And Tom was so welcoming, so inviting, and so was Scott when we met Scott and, and Vicky and, and everybody else. And what that moment did for me is it transformed my thinking. Because I'm telling you guys, I was out. I was done. I was going to be go to what I know. And my whole character characterization of Southern whites was, this is who they are, and I'm not welcome there. And Tom changed that. And here I am today, 20-something odd years later. I'm better for it. I'm a better Christian for it. You know, my stereotypes and all those things are broken down. And the one thing I want to leave you with is you never know how one interaction with anybody, it could be a, you know, a poor person, a person of a different race, somebody who's down on their luck, one interaction can change the course of their life. And that's what I feel Tom did for me. Yeah. Amen. So Tom, I celebrate you today and I'm going to miss you. God bless. Amen. Thank you, Gary. If you're able, let's stand.